Welcome to Real Food Reads, the monthly podcast from Real Food Media where we tackle some of the hottest topics on food, culture, and politics. I'm Tiffany Patton, and today we are talking about water. So I've logged considerable hours getting lost in this month's featured read, The Dreamt Land, Chasing Water and Dust Across California, by notable journalist and author Mark Arax. The Dreamt Land is a beautifully written account of the Central Valley's attempts to extend the water supply beyond its limit amid a warming climate and sinking land. So I'm a California girl through and through, like born and raised in Sacramento and now living in Oakland. And I can't imagine living anywhere else. And one of the reasons why that is, is that I'm so accustomed to like the natural abundance we have here, all the fruits and vegetables that we have access to all the time. And yet that natural abundance actually doesn't come naturally especially when we look at the Central Valley. So can you tell us a little bit about how a place that is as dry as the Central Valley became um, to be known as the breadbasket of America or the land of the billion vegetables? No, you're right. I mean, it doesn't come naturally. It's, it, it requires a lot of bending. Uh, the bending begins with water. To invent California, we had to invent the grandest water-moving system in the history of man. And that was the Central Valley Project in the 30s and 40s, and then the state water project in the 60s. That's the system. That's the system that moves the rain from the far north, Mount Shasta, all the way down to San Diego. You know, it's like a human body if you look at it from the air. You know, you've got the delta as kind of the heart pumping, and then you have all these intricate aqueducts, canals, ditches growing out of that. Mm -hmm. You know, a circulatory system is basically what it is. And um, that system's magnificent. You know, it, it created San Francisco, it created Los Angeles, and then it created this unparalleled farm belt in the middle. Right. But it's cracking, and, and, and that's what my book is about. I go into those cracks because it's not going to see us into the future, but more nuts and more houses. So okay. California starts off in this supercharged way, obviously, with gold mining. But the gold mining at some point, which is the mining of water first, creates this environmental disaster that is, you know, melting away mountains. The silt is running down the rivers of California, and that silt is then polluting the early farmland in the 1880s, mm-hmm. 1870s. And California has a choice. We either mine gold or mine soil, and we choose to mine the soil. So the first big agriculture that happens in the middle of the state is the planting of wheat. It's planted by the very industrialists who made the most money on gold. And so the tradition was they live on Knob Hill in San Francisco, and they farm the interior of California from afar. And at first, they relied on the early rivers and then just the rain to grow their wheat. And they were extraordinary wheat growers. And California wheat was known as white velvet. It was prized throughout Europe. The problem with that, wheat is a monoculture, you know, agriculturally, mm-hmm. and it robbed the fertility from the soil. So then you see another, you know, kind of transition happen in California. It went from gold to wheat, and then from wheat to fruits, vegetables, and nuts. Mm-hmm. And that's the selling of the myth of California that starts in the 1890s and goes throughout the 1920s. And, you know, the Washington Naval Orange, the myth of that orange sells Los Angeles to the world. And folks come in from all over the place. We move the rain 
and we were able to control these wild swings of weather. We move from drought to flood like that. Yeah. And so that system then tempers those tantrums. As you mentioned, this huge circulatory system of moving river water around, but there's also been a lot of digging that's been going on. And it feels like each year we're digging deeper and deeper to obtain that groundwater. So in the beginning of your book, you mentioned your friend Brad, a grower who has been digging deeper wells. Like first there are a couple hundred feet deep and then a thousand feet and then 1,800 feet. But it isn't just Brad who's digging deeper. It's small farmers and large agribusinesses. So what does this race to the bottom of the aquifer do to the land? The footprint of agriculture from the 1890s to today keeps creeping outward. It keeps getting bigger. At first, they were farming the alluvial plains of the rivers, and they were using the river water to do it. And they were farming the best land. Then the turbine pump gets invented in the 1920s, and the farmer is able to pump from the aquifer, that great Mm -hmm. lake that sits underneath the land. And this allows the footprint of farming to go from primo land to a little bit more marginal land. When the system, the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project, aren't able to deliver the water to the farms because the snow melt has been reduced you know, by a poor winter, uh, the farmers then rely on those pumps to make up that difference. So in the drought, There were years where the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project were making zero deliveries to these farmers who count on that water to grow their crops. So they went deeper into the earth to pull that water out. Mm -hmm. The rich guys can afford to go, you know, all the way to, to China to dig to find it. What's happening is a kind of environmental disaster that's happening. The land is sinking, subsidence. So basically what happens when you suck that water out, the clay layers in the earth start collapsing and they shrink and they pull the land down with that shrinkage. And the land is sinking, not by inches, but by feet. Right. You paint Um, this really vivid picture of red top and how there are these orange topped metal gas pipes that used to barely be visible above the dirt and are now a full two feet out of the ground. That's right. That's right. The, The infrastructure is sinking. So the aqueduct itself is sinking. It relies on gravity to shoot that water from north to south. But the gravity flow in whole sections of the aqueduct in the San Joaquin Valley has been lost. Mm -hmm. The land has sunk that much. So we're now having to spend hundreds of millions of dollars in extra electrical costs to pump the water north to south through those dead spots. Mm -hmm. And so that is, you know, that is a consequence of the industrialized kind of form of agriculture that we've created in the middle. Right. So the land is sinking. Um, What is the impact of industrial agriculture on the soil? You know, when you're farming in a big way, you're taking a lot of fertility out of the soil. I have to say that the big farmers have been pretty good about learning lessons from the small farmers, the organic farmers who started composting and and doing cover crops and planting um, legumes and other vetch in the middle of their rows to capture nitrogen Mm -hmm. and and to bring in beneficial bugs. So the big guys in in the middle of the state have learned from the smaller guys how to increase the fertility of the soil. It doesn't mean that the soil isn't getting pushed to its limits and beyond because, I mean, they're asking a lot of the soil, but they understand that it all starts with the soil. And And when your soil is bad, 
your pests are bad. And when your pests are bad, you're having to spend more on insecticides and fungicides and things like that. So that wholeness of the system, I think in the last 30 years, I've documented how farming practices have changed in the middle of the state uh, to become uh, more sustainable, mm-hmm. uh, at least when it comes to the soil. And the water is another matter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So can you talk to us a little bit about who is doing all of this digging? When, when California transitioned from wheat to, to nuts, vegetables, and fruits, we saw the land go into smaller hands. The small farmer had a chance. And in the middle of the state, in the San Joaquin Valley in particular, the most intensive farming experiment, you'll see different farmers in different areas and a different kind of agriculture in each area. And that is because of that area's relationship to water. So on the east side of the San Joaquin Valley and in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley, there are rivers that are running through the land. And the farmer has a fairly easy time of grabbing his water, okay? If he doesn't get it from the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project, he's got his backyard rivers and he's got the aquifer at a pretty high level. And so there you will see small family farms still engage in the business for you know, more than a century. Mm-hmm. And this is the closest we get to kind of the Jeffersonian ideal. As we move to the west side of the San Joaquin Valley, there are no rivers there. In some cases, there is no groundwater to be had, or the groundwater sits 2,000 feet deep mm-hmm. and is kind of salty. In those places, it takes deep pockets, richer farmers, to extract that water and make farming work. So the west side of the valley is dominated by these big growers. Mm -hmm. In in fact, they're the biggest in in the world. And they're led by Stuart Resnick, the biggest grower of pistachios, almonds, pomegranates, and mandarins in the world. Mm -hmm. And like those Knob Hill industrialists, he lives in Beverly Hills and he farms in places like Lost Hills up and over the mountain. We've always seen outside investors here but we're seeing it to a degree we've never seen it before. And we're seeing these hedge funds come in from New York and Florida, and they're buying up the land. And they hire a local farmer, they call him a custom farmer, to farm for them. Mm-hmm. And that's worrisome because they don't have a relationship to the land. It's a distant one. And they're farming in a way that is even more of an extraction model. And the fear is is that they're going to you know, they're, they're just looking for dividends. They're going to farm for 10, 15 years, take the water, push the land, and then get out of it when it no longer is, is you know, penciling out for their investors. That's a problem. So you, we see the whole thing here. But the one trend that we can say for sure is the smaller farmer is becoming more and more of a rare breed. His children don't necessarily want to live on the farm. They don't necessarily want to do farming like all their forebears have done. And going back to these um, hedge fund growers, could you speak to some of the tactics they use to put political pressure on parties to make sure that they get as much access to water as they want? Whether they're hedge funds or the big guys that are here locally, Mm -hmm. in times of drought when they're not getting their water um, and it's costing so much to pump it from the ground, I mean, they're a very loud and powerful force in the political scene of Sacramento Mm -hmm. and in Washington, D.C. So 
you know, they try different tactics to get that water. In this last drought, what they decided is in, instead of the farmer himself making the case for more water, they decided, and it was kind of a cynical ploy, that they were going to use their farm workers, the brown faces, to push them front and center and have them, through rallies and through advertising campaigns, say, hey, we're the workers. If you don't give water to these crops, we don't have a life. We don't have a job. And so these things like the California Latino Water Coalition were formed. And, and so you, you see a lot of political tactics, a lot of lobbying. Right. And you think if get... they'd actually cared about those brown faces, then maybe they'd like offer better wages or safer working conditions. I would go up to the, the workers and um, you know, ask, well, why are you here? And they just said, well, the boss told me to be here. We're getting paid as if we we're in the fields. Mm-hmm. So you know, they, they were holding up these protest signs. No water, no food, no jobs. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's just one of the tactics that, that they were using. Mm-hmm. So big businesses have devastating impacts on people who don't have the capital or infrastructure to dig deeper, namely small farmers and people who live in rural communities. So can you tell us about um, Lawyer and Annie Cooper and other residents of Fairmead? So in the 1930s and 40s, when African-Americans were migrating out of the South to the big cities, the big northern cities, Chicago, Detroit, New York, they also came west to Los Angeles and Oakland. But there was a contingent of blacks who didn't want to leave the rural lifestyle and go to the big city. They wanted to move from rural to rural. So they came to the middle of California and followed the cotton trail where the big cotton growers were. You know, the middle of California feels like the South for a reason. Mm -hmm. The Southern cotton plantation owner in the 1920s, the boll weevil was eating their cotton fields in the South and they came West to plant these cotton plantations. And so the African-Americans followed as workers, and they were the great exception to the great migration, and they wanted to live in the rural. And so up and down the San Joaquin Valley, you see these little settlements, and they're planted in the alkali dust, not in a city, but in the rural area, because African-Americans were locked out of the city by racism in California. So they started these little townships on the alkali dust, the salty dust of the valley. And there you can still find their remnants, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later. And in the town of Fairmead, it's a little incorporated place. You still can find African-Americans living there, kind of their Shangri-La. Their their homes and lives are being impacted because all around them, these big almond growers are planting more and more almond trees. And they're going deeper and deeper into the earth to pull out their water. And as they're doing that, the water in the wells of these African-Americans is drying up because they can't compete. They can't go deeper. They can't afford to go deeper. And so um, they're having to now leave these places they came to, which they considered the promised land, you know, in 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 the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So, yes, I tell the story of Fairmead and Lawyer and Annie Cooper as they're trying to figure out where they're going to go next in Mm -hmm. their 70s and 80s. Mm. 
You also quote a farmer, Andrew Munn, who talks about how communities may not be able to economically survive climate change because it'll require deeper pockets to go deeper in the ground. The situation that Lawyer and Annie found themselves in is not necessarily due to climate change, right? It was due to like man-made like digging and yeah, extraction of the water. Yeah, I don't think that was related to climate change. But right, but there's going to be this the same theme will be happening or it's going to be worsened because of like man-made issues and then coupled with climate change. So we don't need climate change to create these volatile swings mm-hmm. from drought and flood. So that, those swings from drought to flood, they make it tough on a smaller grower who doesn't have the deep pockets to afford to ride out drought time, right? Mm-hmm. much less afford to pump deeper and deeper in the earth. So when climate change hitches on California's own inherent weather and creates these kinds of swings that we've never seen before, what's going to happen invariably is the smaller guy is not going to be able to ride out those swings, right. and the land will become concentrated into bigger and bigger hands. And have you seen that happening when you speak with farmers? Well. I've already, you know, we've yeah. already seen it happen because of the swings the that California swings. brings to weather. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is just project out and say, as the weather becomes more unpredictable, as the snow melt goes from you know heavy flows like this year mm-hmm. to light flows, those swings, that volatility is going to make it very tough for the small guy to survive. Mm-hmm. So in this talk about water, we've mostly just been talking about water to produce fruits and vegetables, water to farm. But there's also the matter of drinking water. And you say on page 45 of your book, no one talks, much less testifies about the hundreds of thousands of people throughout California whose only draw of water to drink and bathe in is water that endangers their lives. So can you speak to this poor quality of water that we have in California? Right. So those communities, those rural communities that, that popped up for a variety of reasons, they, they put down wells or they had to, you know, jury rig these water systems. And there they exist, you know, all these years later. Governor Newsom, you know, you have to give him some props. He came through um, and has found money to kind of clean up these rural water systems. But we have an environmental disaster that really hasn't been written about in the way that it deserves and it's this chemical called 1,2,3-TCP. There are nematodes in the soil. Nematodes are almost these microscopic bugs that attack the root zones of young, freshly planted crops. Okay. Mm-hmm. Back in the 40s and 50s, Dow and Shell created nematicides that basically were fumigants that killed these nematodes. But inside their nematicide, they had put this chemical called 1,2,3-TCP. Now, mind you, this chemical had nothing to do with killing nematodes. Mm-hmm. These giants, um, you know, Dow and Shell, they were making plastics, and they needed to get rid of some of the byproducts of plastics. One of those byproducts is 1,2,3-TCP. They decided to put it in this nematicide, this fumigant, and there it exists, That's ridiculous. you know, a half a century later, massive pollutions of groundwater that these communities are relying on. This is the second most cancer-causing agent that science has ever found. And so it's knocking out these small-town water systems, and there are these lawsuits playing out right now. 
you know, will these these you know Dow and Shell pay the full cost of this? And it's an environmental disaster, you know. Mm-hmm. And then just speaking to what you mentioned earlier about Governor Newsom and signing the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Act, which just happened in Tombstone, California, which is an unincorporated community. So it's so great that not only the place is being recognized, but also that this act is finally being signed, that they're getting funds to have access to safe and affordable drinking water. That's right. These were shadow communities. The Black Okies, the White Okies, then became replaced by, uh, you know, I call them the Brown Okies, the the, the Latinos, the Mexicans. In those um, Black Okie communities, if you go to them today, you will see the Black Okies have mostly died. Their children have moved on. And what you see are, are, um, you know, villages that are like south of the border in some cases. You know, so this is the transition of California. Mm-hmm. So we often think of California as the pioneer in the green economy with policies designed to reduce emissions and promote green technologies. But in many ways, your book tells a different story. It's a story of a state that hasn't grappled with natural limits to industrial agriculture and urban sprawl. So how do you reconcile these two versions of California? Or maybe the question is, is California really as eco-friendly as it's often portrayed? You know, I guess I try to reconcile them, but I just play with uh, the kind of schizophrenia of California. So it took us 165 years to decide to regulate the extraction of groundwater. I mean, we're one of the last states in the nation mm-hmm. that allowed for this kind of freewheeling notion of, of, yeah, just take the water beneath you. Doesn't matter that the land is sinking 50, 60 feet over a uh, half a century. So what we have is a place that, in many ways, has not adhered, and in, in fact, has defied limit lines. Mm-hmm. That system we talked about, that that miracle system of moving the water, it began with 11 million Californians. There's now, you know, 40 million Californians. You know, I was just up in the town of Paradise. I did a big magazine piece on what were the factors mm. that led to that fire. Yeah. And one of the major factors was the way that town was allowed to grow. The state of California basically says the locals control land use. The problem with that is is the locals are open to all sorts of local pressures from developers and builders. And so how could a community, a suburban community, sprawl 40,000 people onto this narrow ridge between these two river canyons, uh, Paradise, Magalia, and its kind of sister communities. That is a geologic chimney in the path of wildfire, and yet it grew, and it grew in the most irresponsible way. We quite haven't decided, or maybe we have, that some issues we pick to be pretty progressive on environmentally, but others we might as well be a state in the deep south the right. way we we deal with stuff. And do you think it's because with some of these other things that we can afford to be like the pioneer in, um, it's because we literally can, in the short term, financially afford to do it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's still the gold rush mentality. Mm-hmm. We started off in this very supercharged way. I mean, manifest destiny, which, you know, was that force that settled the West, uh, it didn't really settle California. The gold rush settled California. And we believed that we could defy nature, and we did. And we continue to believe that. 
you know, even as we get reminded every every few years that oh well, no nature, you know, nature rules the landscape with with drought and flood. We have this weird collective amnesia in California, and uh, we think we are the great exception. So you spoke just now about the gold rush, and I really appreciated your telling of how basically California had been colonized three times. Um, yes. Can you speak to that a little bit more? The taking of California's resources, you know, we've been talking about extraction and water and the bending of earth and, and river. I mean, the taking of California really begins with the taking of the body of the indigenous. We, we, we had the, the greatest concentration of native peoples in North America, 300,000 natives living more or less in peace, not like the Cherokee and the Sioux who were fighting over these limited resources. Heck, in California, the, the resources were plenty. Mm-hmm. And so all these folks more or less got along. And then we see the Spanish friars come up and over the border from Mexico, which Spain had conquered before, and they start these missions. And the taking of the body of the Indian is the first resource that is taken. And it's through that taking that allows for the first rivers to be diverted into canals and dams to be built. Then Mexico has its time in California, not a very successful colonization. And the Americans coming up and over the hills are you know, exploring the land and taking from the rivers, and they're trapping uh, these animals and, and killing the grizzly bear and everything else. And so that becomes its own taking. And then John Sutter, a fugitive from Switzerland, comes to California and starts his new Helvetia empire, he calls it, at the confluence of two rivers, the Sacramento and the American, the worst floodplain in all of California. Talk Mm. about defiance. He puts (laughs) our state capital right there in the worst floodplain. It's our original sin. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is gold is discovered in one of those rivers, and it ruins his dream. It creates this other dream. 80,000 people come basically overnight, and they start extracting the resources of California, and that extraction hasn't stopped. So a lot of people must ask you if they should boycott almonds and other water-intensive crops. But at Real Food Media, we talk a lot about how we have to go beyond voting with our fork. Do you think conscious consumers should stop buying water-guzzling foods? Well, you know, all food is is water-guzzling. During the drought, people were boycotting the almond, you know, saying that one almond took a gallon of water. But, you know, you can do that math with any crop. I mean, you could start with beef. I mean, nothing guzzles more water than beef. And then for the vegetarians among us, I mean, legumes are a big water guzzler. So growing food takes water, a lot of water. In the state of California, we decided that of our captured water, in a lot of years, 70 to 80% goes to agriculture. Um, So we just have to decide if that is a good use of our water or would we rather sprawl suburbia across the greatest earth in the world? You could see a judgment (laughs) in the way I put that. Yeah. (laughs) um, But that doesn't mean that consumers shouldn't be really intimately involved in these issues. You know, you need to source where you're buying your fruits and nuts from. There are a lot of small farmers who are growing these things in ways that are even more delicious. Mm -hmm. You know, I have this particular almond grower that I go to. It's a family almond grower. And 
you can taste the difference in the almond, okay, mm-hmm. the pistachio. Uh, you don't have to buy wonderful pistachios that are grown by Stuart Resnick uh, if you don't want to. You have these choices, and I think those choices should go back to what those folks are doing with the soil and the water. So it's What's not so much happen? about like what we're eating exactly, but how the food that we're eating is being produced. That's right. That's right. So what kinds of changes do you think at the community or policy level would help us have more sane agricultural policies that support small farmers without exhausting the land? I think agriculture as a whole is going to change because we've finally regulated groundwater taking. Mm-hmm. And, and if the state truly holds the locals feet to the fire, you're going to see a lot of farmland go back to nature. Mm-hmm. So this groundwater law, if it's done right, should probably retire a million and a half acres in the San Joaquin Valley alone. The best farmland then gets the best water. It frees up water to go back into the rivers. So that's a big change that I'm hoping to see, a more sustainable kind of farming on the best soil. Mm-hmm. And what is the timeline for the groundwater law and who is deciding on how that will be like implemented? Yeah, that's the question. The locals now who are deciding on that modeling, in some cases, are the very big farmers whose wells are dug deep into the earth. So we're going to see this process play out over the next, well, it's happening right now, over the next five to ten years, and we will see how real it all is. Hmm. Do you think that we have that much time to... (laughs) To like limit the amount of groundwater that we're using and change our ways? Well, when that land sinks, mm-hmm. the capacity of the clay layer to absorb and hold water shrinks forever. Mm-hmm. When the flood comes and you put water back on that land, that clay layer then doesn't absorb. It's not like a sponge that all of a sudden opens up and absorbs water again. No, it's closed forever. Mm-hmm. So your question about time, yeah, I mean... I guess we have five years, 10 years. I mean, it's in geologic time, that's nothing. But all the while, damage is being done. Thank you for listening to this episode of Real Food Reads. If you enjoyed this one, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We love doing this work and hope that you check out our other resources at realfoodmedia.org. Thank you.